Hey everybody, it's Jim Peterick of the Ides of March, formerly with Survivor and of 38 Special Fame, and you're listening to Follow Your Dream Podcast with Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast. I am Robert Miller, your host. I'm pleased to tell you that my Follow Your Dream handbook is now out and available. The handbook is a combination memoir of my musical journey and a step-by-step how-to book. Plus, it's got a whole bunch of very cool photos of my life and my career. I wrote the handbook as an extension of this podcast to help everyone to pursue and succeed at their dream, whatever it may be. The reviews have been just spectacular. It's been called inspiring, extremely helpful, highly readable, the guiding light, and a true literary treasure. So pick up the Follow Your Dream handbook today. It's available on Amazon and wherever books are sold. I am totally thrilled to have Mark Farner as my guest today. Mark was the lead singer, guitarist, and focal point of Grand Funk Railroad, one of the premier bands of the 1970s. He has sold over 30 million records, and his current touring band is called Mark Farner's American Band. He happens to be a big supporter of America's veterans. Not too many people probably know this. His father was a World War II veteran and a Bronze Star recipient. His mother was the first woman welder to weld a tank in World War II. How about that? And he also works to support farmers and individuals with disabilities and others. He is a true Renaissance man. In the second half of this show, we're going to do something that I love to do with all my musical guests, and that is something I call a song fest where we're going to play a bunch of Mark's greatest songs kind of underneath, and we're going to listen to them, and we're going to talk about them. It's great fun, and nobody else does this stuff on a podcast. My featured song in this episode, which you're hearing underneath this introduction, and you'll hear it at the end of this episode as well, is called Free, and it's from the album The PGS Experience by my band Project Grand Slam. You know, I try to make every song that I feature on this podcast relevant somehow to my guest or to the subject matter of the interview. And Free is my reimagined version of a song by the band Fish. And I chose this song because so much of Mark's focus is on helping people. And what? how do you help people? You make them free. How's about that? Amen. So, Mark Farner, welcome to the Follow hey. Your Dream podcast, baby. Good to be with you, Brother Robert. You are the it guy. I have to tell you, I had Mark Stein from the Vanilla Fudge on recently, and I told him, and it was true, that the Vanilla Fudge was my first band crush when I was a teenager, okay, and I was playing music. But I got to be honest with you, 
Grand Funk Railroad was in the top five of my band crushes. Okay. All you right. Guys were, you guys were awesome. I love you more now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm a few years younger and I was coming up through the ranks. I play the bass. I was playing, you know, in a cover band as a teenager. That's what everybody starts out doing. Right. Right. On. And uh, your stuff came on the radio. I'm your captain. We're an American band. I mean, we just had to cover that stuff. It was so good. Awesome. Thank you, Brother Robert. I appreciate that. And it's encouraging to hear you say that, my friend. Totally. So listen, I always ask people because, you know, this is a podcast called Follow Your Dream. What was your dream when you were young? Was it your dream to be a musician? Well, not really. I I was really focused on playing football until I had an injury that, you know, forced me to stop playing football. Prior to that, in the fifth grade, I was playing a sousaphone and I was in the <laughs> marching band. And Brother Robert, I noticed that the girls were not watching the marching band. They were watching the tight ends and those guys that were playing football. <laughs> and I said, well, I have to join the football team because that's what I'm into. I'm into those girls looking at me. And I would love when they called my name out on the speaker, dude. Well, that was, that was Farner number 66 in on the tackle. You know, I mean, I was prancing across that field. What was your position, Mark? I was center linebacker, defensive linebacker over, over the center. They called me the roving reporter because I was in on Every tackle, dude. <laughs> I so you, were there. you were crushing the other team. That's what you're telling me. Yeah, we and we were undefeated, totally undefeated. And we hung out together. You know, we we smoked cigarettes together. <laughs> we we drank beer together. We were we were friends, and that's what made us such a great team. And and you know, gave us our undefeated title. But when I got hurt, a lot of my friends on the team quit playing because I quit playing. And they, they said, ah, we don't want to be there if you're not there. And so, you know, the, the football coach kind of held that against me. The team fell apart without you is what you're saying. Yeah, it's kind of, that's the way it was. All but, right. And I was blamed for that. And there's a whole nother episode of my life where I got kicked out of school because of that. <laughs> you're kidding. You got kicked out of school because of that? Yeah, yeah, because wow. that football coach, you know, he was standing with, with all the players and um, the Holy Rosary did that last half of their day at my high school, Kersley High School in Flint, Michigan. And when the bus pulled up and the Holy Rosary kids started coming in through the doorway, the coach yells over at me because I'm, I'm standing there. We're, we're, you know, probably six or eight guys just hanging out around the, the heat register, the, the radiator there. And he says, hey, Farner, move your boys. And I looked around. I said, these are not my boys, sir. And he comes marching over. He grabs me by the nap of the neck. He throws me up against the wall. And my head ricocheted off this picture of the superintendent of the schools. It just happened to be a brass frame that was attached to the bricks behind it you know, with lags and, and it split my head open. I reached back and I felt, you know, wet. And then when I brought my hand down in front of my face and I saw all that blood, I just tagged him right in his eye and down he went. Boom. 
Wow. And, and, and when he got up, I went, Oh my God, his, his uh, eyebrow was unzipped and the flap was over his eye and he was swinging wild haymakers at me and I was ducking and ducking and I was timing it out. Cause I was going to give him another, <laughs> you know, as I was ducking and my friend grabs my arm, Derry Spick says, no, Farner, you idiot. Don't hit him again. You're already in deep enough trouble. And so anyways, they, they threw me out of school and uh, they didn't want my kind around. So that got me into playing music full time. Now you went from the sousaphone to what the guitar? Yeah, man. Uh, my mother got me six lessons and rented an acoustic guitar for my birthday because she knew I loved playing ball and I was down in the dumps. And uh, so I took three of the six lessons and then the guitar teacher I had was out ring neck pheasant hunting and he shot himself in the foot with a 12 gauge. <laughs> Yeah, oh, you know you can't make this stuff up. <laughs> so he calls my mother, tells my mother, "Go ahead and have Mark watch the guys in the high school band where my sister was telling me these guys were really good musicians." And and uh, so I went with her to their rehearsals, and I would watch, and and they uh, they were playing and and then showing me chords and stuff on the guitar, and they weren't singing much. I said, "Don't you guys sing?" Uh, and I was in the, the uh, choir in school, you know, I was a singer and they said, nah, we don't like singing, <laughs> you know? And so I said, well, how about if I sing? So I would sing Johnny B. Good and Nadine and all these songs, you know, and they loved it. Uh, but I couldn't play guitar yet. So my chord went back from my guitar over the amplifier and just kind of hung there, you know, wrapped <laughs> one time around the handle and hung out the back. I, my light was on, so it, it appeared that it I, looked good. It I looked was good. Millie Vanilli in it, man. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now, I got to ask you, was this before the Beatles or after the Beatles? Oh, that was before the Beatles. Yes, definitely. Okay. Because, you know, so many of the guys I've had on the show, we talk about the fact that, you know, their musical life began with Ed Sullivan and the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. But you were into it before then. Yes, I was into it. Uh, just to go with these guys to play VFW halls, the wedding receptions, the parties, and we never charged anything. We only passed the hat and ma and made uh, you know a little request uh, at the end of the night. We're going to pass this hat around, and all we're looking for is enough money to put gas in that car to get us home. So don't feel pressured by this, but please help us out. And it always paid off. <laughs> always. Oh, man. Well, I'll tell you, switching to the uh, guitar from the sousaphone was probably a very good move because there's not too many rock sousaphonists, right? <laughs> yeah. Good observation. <laughs> not too many. You know, when you said that, I had this image. Do you remember there's a Woody Allen movie where he plays cello in a marching band? <laughs> and he keeps moving the chair up, you know, five feet with the cello each time the band is moving down the street. And I'm picturing you with this giant sousaphone on yeah. your back, <laughs> schlepping it along with the rest of the band. Oh, yeah. And it was back in the day when they were, you know, they were brass, all metal. Right. Oh, my way to tongue. Oh, my God. Yeah, man. Yeah, I was I was kind of glad to get out from underneath the weight of that thing and graduate to the guitar. <laughs> I can imagine. All right, so tell me about your first band, okay? You're a teenager, 
you're playing guitar. Now, this time you, you plug the thing in, I imagine, at some point. Yes. Tell me what was happening. What were you doing? What was the name of the band and what were you playing? Well, we lived in Genesee County, so we were the Geneseans. Okay. <laughs> and I was playing uh, just rhythm guitar and, and doing a lot of the singing. And my sister, Diane, would come and sing. And, and sometimes if, if Jim Keener, the drummer, didn't show up, uh, she would go back and do that. You know, the old drum beat. Uh-huh. <laughs> and she could do it and hold it down. And wow. we played. Uh, we had fun. We had more fun uh, just playing. And, and I think that's why people wanted us to come and play at their wedding receptions and parties is because they knew we were going to have fun. Okay. So when did you make the jump from that to Grand Funk? Tell us about that. Well, it was right after I had been uh, called to play bass guitar for Terry Knight in the Pack, which was a local Michigan band uh, that that had some recognition. They had cut a record uh, by Benny King called I Who Have Nothing. You probably remember. I Who Have Nothing. I know that song. Yeah. So I was in that band, and Terry Knight was the singer and uh, the front man, and Don Brewer was the drummer for the band, of course. And, and we got to talk, and we said, listen, we should fire that guy. He can't sing. You know, he just and, – and Don could sing better than him. I could sing better than him. Crowfoot could, could sing better – we said, you know, we got the singers. We just don't need this guy. And all he's doing is like, you know, combing his hair on stage and trying to be sexy for the girls. But it wasn't working anyway. So and we, he's taking all the money, too. Probably. Yeah, That's right. The lion's share. <laughs> so we fired him and we were the pack and we went out to Cape Cod. We had some gigs out there that were kind of speculative. Uh, the guy that sent us out from Delta promotion said, if you guys do good out there, we can go back and really make some good money, but you got to show them that you can do it and we'll give you enough money to get you out there. Uh, but you're not going to be paid for these gigs, but you'll be taken care of. So we go because we want to get the hell out of Flint, Michigan, you know, and we show up in uh, the Boston area, did a few gigs, but we were living on the Cape in East sandwich. And we had a couple of, cottages right there uh robert on the on the beach and this is guys from michigan the first time we saw the ocean (laughs) serious Uh, we went out we had every seashell that we could find the starfish and all this stuff we had collected to take back to michigan to show the people that it's really an ocean (laughs) oh yeah we've been there (laughs) and we we had all this stuff down in the crawl space underneath these cottages and then the worst storm in the history of the world hits the uh, East Coast and socks us in, floods the basement, freezes the pipes. We were stranded in East Sandwich, um, you know, Cape Cod. And all we had, it got down to all we had was oatmeal, no sugar, no butter, no milk, nothing but oatmeal. And we were melting down snow to eat this oatmeal uh, uh, because the pipes were frozen, man. But we did have gas in the gas uh, stove 
And that was what we kept just enough of the chill off in the house to keep from dying. Wow. <laughs> we had the burners running, the oven running. And, and at that time, the, the two of the guys in the band were married, the uh, Kenny Rich guitar player and uh, Craig Frost, uh, who ended up playing keyboards for, for Grand Funk later on. But his, he was married and his wife and this other guy, by the time we got back to Michigan, their wives threatened to divorce them and they had to quit the band and Brewer and I got together and we said, we can't have this. We, you know, I said, let's just put a three piece together and it can't be anybody that's married or even got a very strict girlfriend. You know, we don't want women ruining the band, dude. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, we went to, we went back to Michigan, Brewer's mother, Western unions, um, some money to us enough to get get home and we hitchhiked up the coast after we walked across the bridge you know got on the mainland and we we headed up the coast to this drugstore where it was a western union you know wire uh, transfer got the money rented a van and went and got our stuff and drove back to michigan and we wanted to go to Delta Promotions to give them a piece of our mind because we found out that we were actually being paid $350 a night for these gigs. And the guy that was out there telling us uh, that he would supply us with groceries and everything, he was pocketing the money. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome to the music business. Yeah. And bringing us enough to get by on. But, you know, after you're there on Cape Cod for a week, you get pretty hungry. And that's like what I said, we were down to oatmeal. Oh, we had man. all moved into one of the cottages and we we spent most of the time huddled around the stove. Just to keep warm. <laughs> yeah. And dude, you know, you did you didn't have the facilities, no one, no running water, no water. So what do you do for for uh, defecating? <laughs> you know, <laughs> we had this old yeah. chair <laughs> and we would put the grocery sacks that we got from the, the grocer up in East Sandwich with and plastic line them and put this old chair that didn't have a seat in it. That was our stool. And we would defecate in them bags and take them out and bury them in a snowbank. I would have hated to been the dude doing the spring cleanup, I'll tell you. This is a very exciting story. Thank you very <laughs> much. I appreciate it. <laughs> All right. Listen, I know at some point you met Mel who was yes. with Question Mark and the Mysterians. Is that right? Yes, that's right. And while we were at Delta Promotions in the outer waiting room, we were listening uh, to the band. All you could hear was like the bass drum and the bass coming through the wall. You couldn't really hear much of anything else. Right. But I looked over at Brewer and I said, Brewer, whoever's playing bass in this band can play the bass, dude. We ought to see who that is. And so when they took a break, Mel Shocker walks out and Mel and I had gone to school together. He, I knew he was a bass player. I didn't even give him a second thought because he was playing bass for question mark and the Mysterians. And that was question mark and the Mysterians there practicing. And when they took their break, Mel walked out. I said, Mel, dude, how you doing? And everything, you know, I said, he, he said, what are you guys doing here? And, and I told him, I said, well, we're going to start a three piece. He says, you're starting a three piece, huh? I said, yeah, you wouldn't be interested in, in 
doing that gig with you. He says, man, I am so ready to leave this band. And he told us all the problems he was having. And I said, awesome. Out of sight. This is great. Must be God. You know, <laughs> I figure how many times can you play 96 tears? <laughs> <laughs> right. So we started, Robert, the, the very next week, we started at the Flint Federation of Musicians on Averill Street in Flint, Michigan. And Frank Geyer, the, the guy who was ahead of the union, Every 10 minutes, he's coming out and he's going, you boys, turn that down. We can't even hear the phones ringing. <laughs> <laughs> That's when you knew you had it done, right? Oh, yeah, man. <laughs> That's fantastic. All right. I mean, you guys became so incredibly big. I thought of you at one point as kind of the American version of Cream because you had that power trio thing going. But I mean, it just exploded for you. Tell us about that. That must have been just remarkable. Well, we did have the three-piece thing down, uh, and we did have something special because we were all from Flint, Michigan. And if you're from Flint, Michigan, and you are a musician, you have a certain percentage of funk in you that's just part of what Flint gives you from living in that city, from being, you know, musicians and and being influenced by the music that CKLW was playing in Windsor Ontario you know WAMM wham in Flint uh we always tuned into those stations and after 11 o'clock at night Robert you could tune in to WLAC in Nashville Tennessee and it was John R. Way down south in Dixie. You're listening to the Royal Crown hairdressing show. <laughs> and we would listen to all the blues and all of the great music uh, that John R. was playing. And we were definitely heavily influenced by it. So there was a certain amount of the funk and this, this you know, R&B to our rock and roll. Uh, and it was just unavoidable. You know, it's how I sing. I listened to Howard Chait. He was my favorite singer of all time. And I tried to emulate him. He gave me good things to work with. Uh, and people liked it. And when we got our first big gig, I mean, it was the first gig we ever played uh, because uh, Don Brewer had stayed in touch with Terry Knight. And Terry Knight was living in New York City and said he wanted to be our manager. He didn't want to be the lead singer anymore. He wanted to be a manager because he had great connections and could take us out of Flint. And one of the deals was that his uh, attorneys were doing the legal work for this first Atlanta Pop Festival in 1969, and that they could get us on the festival to do it free if we played for free. And they were going to take, uh, you know, a decrease in their legal fees. And of course, uh, the promoters of the Atlanta Pop Festival went for it. And we showed up uh, after a lot of turmoil to get there. We showed up, went up on that stage, opening act. It was 12 noon, 110 degrees in the shade, brother. And when we kicked it off, it was like that crowd, we got their attention, man. They loved us. They mm -hmm. loved the music. We did all our first album that day. Plus, for an encore, 
we did Land of a Thousand Dances, Wilson <laughs> Pickett style. And I took my guitar off and I was dancing all over that stage, man. I was, you know, I was really getting into it and the crowd was loving it. And I had bought this $50 Paisley print shirt that you could see through it, you know, but they had this Paisley print on it. And this thing was sticking to me, dude. It was like, I was sweating so profusely and this shirt was just hindering my movement. So what I did, I ripped this $50 shirt off and that was a lot of money back then, brother. You bet. You know, I ripped that shirt off and the audience just came up like, holy, <laughs> that was great. So that was part of my shtick going on shirtless. And then, you know, of course I had my armband on because I'm an eighth Cherokee and uh, I sport who I am. And uh, I think it's in my voice and in my spirit, uh, what I'm proud of and uh, who I, who I try to be, you know, you definitely had the look that went along with the sound. Okay. Yeah. You had the look. And that may, you know, look back in that day, that was important. Okay. Yes. Um, you know, even, even Peterick, Jim Peterick was telling me when he first saw you back then, you know, he said you were like the God at that time. He says, you know, you had the fringe jacket thing going and the, you know, no shirt and the long hair and you're playing guitar and the sweats flying. I mean, that, that was the look. I mean, you like, you defined a rock star, baby. <laughs> Well, I was trying my heart out and it, it just, the people loved us that first day, Robert, we went on at noon. The second day we went on at like 7 PM and the third day, the closing day of the festival, we went on at 11 PM under the lights and the rest is history that could, because you know, that the, I think it was, oh my God. 185,000 people was, you know, the estimate of that crowd. They were not all from Atlanta, brother. They, they were from all over the United States and the word went out from that red. festival. And then we played Texas international. And then we played up the strawberry fields in, in uh, Montreal, Canada, all these big festivals. And, and the word went fast. I mean, cause wherever there was music festival, you were drawing people from all over the United yeah. States. I got to ask you about one in particular, because I know you played Shea stadium. Oh yeah. And, and I'm a New York boy. Okay. And you know, when I think of Shea stadium, there's only one band that I'm thinking of and it's the Beatles, of course, but you guys did even better than the Beatles. Didn't you? Oh, we sold it out quicker. It took uh, 72 hours or 71 hours. Uh, somebody corrected me the other day, but uh, they, you had to go right there to the ticket office, Robert. There was no online sales. So right. <laughs> 55,000 people uh, showed up at Shea Stadium ticket office to buy tickets. And a lot of them camped out overnight that first night. And when they woke up in the morning, uh, they, the pit, the uh, tents were all pitched on the lawn and what have you. There was people all over the place. And I'll never forget it because, you know, that this was big time. And it was in the New York papers. These kids actually camped out to, to go see this band. And it was a big deal, man. That's amazing. All right. I want to segue into the second part of this interview where we're going to play some of your music. And I want to talk about some of these songs with you. 
I mean, you're known for certain songs, so you'll forgive me if I'm going to focus on some of those songs that I just think are iconic. Please. And the first one that we're, we're playing right now underneath is I'm Your Captain, parentheses closer to home. I love the fact that you kind of got two songs into one in that. Tell me a little bit about it. How did it come about? And what are your thoughts on that? Well, it actually came about, you know, I always say my prayers at night and I was, uh, I would say the, my, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord, my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord, my soul to take, then go into blessing everybody I could recall in the family and all my relatives and cousins, you know, I had to get them all. And then at the end of that, I put a little PS on it. And I said, God, would you please give me a song that would reach and touch the hearts of those you want to get to? And I woke up, you know, 3 a.m., 3.30, something like that. And I was in the mental state of somewhere between heaven and earth. And I always keep a steno pad next to my bed because I've lost a lot of things just being so lazy, I couldn't get up. And I, I, I said, oh, I'll remember that in the morning. I, I lost the best songs I ever wrote in my sleep. You I know? can imagine. So I, I grabbed the pad and I'm, I don't want to completely wake up. So I'm just writing, you know, I'm in that state of mind and it's where the song writers go. It's like, uh, bobbing for songs you know <laughs> the the apples are going by and you're you getting you know you're bobbing for these songs in the trough and i start writing everybody listen to me i'm and i can't go back and like a lot of times you know i'll go back to the start of the song and, and get the flow and then get the second verse but i couldn't go back i knew better than to try and you know breathe hash those words in my mind. I had to keep the ones, I had to keep my focus on the ones coming. And it was very difficult, but I stayed in that state of mind, in that dreaminess that I was in. And I, I penned the song and it was, it about wore me out, dude. That song, just writing it, just 
wow, it took me the rest of the way. So I just put the pad off to the side. I, I rolled back into the bed and, uh, you know, fell, fell asleep and finished the night off sleep. Get up in the morning. I go make my coffee. I got uh, my feet up on a table. I'm playing my flat top. I had a George Washburn U.S. made nice acoustic guitar. And I start playing that. That opening lick. And I went, oh, man, that was pretty cool. And then <laughs> for some reason, dude, I grabbed this C chord inversion that I'd never played before. But it just was like, wow, why did my. And then I'm looking at my hands going, wow, that's a pretty chord. I got to remember this. And I'm, I'm seeing, I'm putting the, the finger position positions down and I'm going, yeah, man, I got to remember this. And then it came to me. Oh, maybe those words in the other room are part of what I'm getting right now. So I go get that steno pad, bring it in, start playing and, and hitting that C chord. And it just came out. Everybody listen to me you know it just came dude and i i i sang it just the way it was written down on the paper and i took it to rehearsal that day and both don and mel says farner man you wrote a hit and they were right because that's a hit in the in the hearts of many people oh absolutely so when you wrote the lyrics you didn't have the melody in your head at that moment it was only when you woke up that you got the melody that's right. That's remarkable. That is exactly how it happened, brother. Wow. Wow. And you're right. It was a complete total hit. I mean, just spectacular, really. And I think part of that is because there was no video, brother Robert. No video. It was, it's like, you know, when somebody reads a book and they go to see the movie, they go, man, that movie sucked. The book was a lot better. Right. It's because our imagination is at work and we have much better uh, graphics than they could have put in the movie, you know? So that is to the advantage in my humble opinion of why that song became so big is because it was something different to every person that heard it. And I was talking to a jock at WNEW -E right there in New York. Right. And he says, Farner, it's because, you know, there's no video. And he says, we took a poll to find out from our listeners what a hundred people thought the bridge over troubled water was all about by Simon and Garfunkel. He said, dude, we got a hundred diversely different explanations. He right. says there wasn't any two that were even close. And so that is a beautiful thing right there. But when the, the uh, music videos started, our music went down, went downhill, in my opinion, because our imaginations weren't working. We were just accepting whatever that video was, uh, you know, depicting. And that was the meaning of the song. Uh, so the beautiful part of who we are, our imaginations were stifled by music physics. I'm, I'm, you know, just my humble opinion. Well, that's a, that's quite an explanation. Tell me a little bit about the ending because you did that closer to home portion of the song, which really changed the whole field.
How did you get that? The guy who was the band leader at uh, on Channel 5 in, in Cleveland on the Upbeat show, his name was Tommy Baker. And we were there doing uh, the Upbeat show. And along with James Brown that day, and they were playing live. And Tommy Baker was a great horn player. But uh, James Brown, when they were in the rehearsals, uh, you know, one of the, the horn player, his trumpet player blew a clam, dude. And he fires him just like that on the spot. And he says to Tommy Baker, Tommy, can you play these lines? And Tommy says, yes, sir. I'll come over there and play those lines. And Tommy nailed it. And, you know, after that, I'm, I'm showing some people. I'm showing David Spiro this, the song that I had wrote, that God gave me this song. And I'm showing him, and Tommy Baker's listening from across the room, and he came over, and he says, what the hell is that, dude? I go, well, it's a song God gave me. It's called Closer to Home, you know, and I get into that I'm Your Captain part. He says, when you get to that part, he says, just keep going over and over and over. I'm hearing things. He says, brother, I am hearing things for that song. And he wrote the orchestration for that whole Ending. ending. And he, yeah, he told me, he says, dude, when you feel like you can't play it another time, give me 10 more rounds. <laughs> <laughs> well, he was right because it worked. It really did work. Yeah. It changed the feel, but that, that long, long uh, decline on the song, it was just beautiful. Yeah. Okay. Let's go to the next one. Um, this is another one. This became, I think your first number one, we're an American band. Another great song. Tell us about that. Well, Lynn Goldsmith, who was, uh, she was titled as our publicist, but she was more of a co-manager as far as her involvement with us. She was the one who came up with the, you know, the gold uh, vinyl album. She said, we can use an ad campaign saying that we're shipping it gold and we won't be lying. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, and she came up with all the girls in the world beware and, you know, all of these uh, shining on the 3D glasses, that's all Lynn Goldsmith. So she says to us, why don't you guys write a song that's about who you are? You're an American band. And so the, the next day, 
Brewer comes in, he says, I got lyrics. He says, I got it. I got this. And so he starts singing the song. And I, I said, well, I hear it a little different as far as the music, but uh, yeah, I can dig that. And so I start playing and I'm, I said, it's got to have a cowbell. I'm hearing a cowbell. And he says, well, I don't have a cowbell. I said, well, damn, you got to get a cowbell, dude, because this song is begging for a cowbell. And I said, all these hit songs, just think of the hit songs with cowbells. I said, this is going to be one. And uh, so he said, well, I'll pick one up. I said, pick six of them up and we'll pick the best one that is, you know, closest to being in tune with our song. And, and I wrote, the chord changes, you know, I, I was, I was hearing that stuff and he said, yeah, man, that sounds good. Let's do it like that. Let's do it like that. And uh, of course, all the background vocals and, and the way I, you know, sang him. Uh, but after the song was complete, we recorded it at Criteria in Miami, uh, Florida. And Brewer came to me and he says, Mark, you know, I've never had a hundred percent right credit on any song. Do you mind if I take it on this one? I immediately said, go ahead, Donnie, because I'm a nice guy. And even though people think I got kicked in the teeth for doing something like that, I, it didn't change me. I won't let something in life change my heart from who I am. I'm still a nice guy. And even though I've been taken advantage of, it's only money. You ain't going to take none of that shit with you anyways, or any of the shit that you buy with it. It's all going to stay here. Somebody else is going to be breaking your toys when you're gone. So I'm in that, in that mindset. And, uh, you know, I said, go ahead and take it. So he gets a hundred percent right credit, but he didn't write that song. No, I mean, he wrote the lyrics. That's what he can actually take credit for. And I take credit for most well, of the you, you did the right thing. And I got to tell you, you told this little story about the cowbell I just had on the show. In fact, it just got released this week. Joe Bouchard from Blue Oyster Cult. Uh -huh. And you probably know that Don't Fear the Reaper had this second life when Saturday Night Live did the more cowbell skit yeah. with Christopher Walken, which, you know, is so iconic at this point. And it was so fun to go back and listen to that skit again but you're right now that i'm thinking about it where an american band had that cowbell thing going and it was beautiful it had the drive and in rolling stone uh top 10 cowbell songs american band was number two only to be superseded by honky-tonk women right yeah <laughs> you just never know that's you a beautiful know, story brother. All right, one last song here. You did a you did a remake of the locomotion. Little Eva.
tell me about that. Why'd you choose that song? And tell me a little bit about it. Well, brother, the, you know, Todd Rundgren was the producer on the album. And uh, I lived across the street from the studio. I had a uh, 190 acres and the stu studio was on an 80 acre piece across from the farm, which, you know, was 110 acres. And uh, I was going home for lunch and uh, it was on a dirt road, you know, and the, and the road leading back, the driveway leading back to the, to the studio, we made it like an S so you couldn't just look down there and, and see that it was, you know, anything there. And I'm walking down that little S driveway back to the studio and I could hear the guys. Uh, I couldn't see them because of the forest there, but I could hear them and they were out in the parking lot where they would always go out and have a smoke, you know, when we were taking a break, you know, everybody go out in the parking lot. And I could hear them. So I started singing, everybody's doing a brand new dance now. And then those guys are singing the backgrounds. Come on, baby. Do, do the locomotion. Yeah, man. <laughs> and so Rundgren comes walking out as I make the last curve there and at the, and I'm looking at the guys and we're still singing the song. He's walking out with his hands up in the air. Like what the hell is that? He says, I said, what the hell is that? Are you kidding me? That's little Eva. That's a locomotion. He says, well, get your asses in here. Cause we're going to cut the locomotion. And what he did, dude, we went inside. We, we ran through it, you know, just a little bit because I knew the chords to it. And Todd hit the red button. This is back, you know, two inch tape and a 24 right. track. And he hit the go button and he came out in the studio with us. And he was the one doing all the high falsetto and clanging the ashtrays. And, you know, he was inciting. Uh, and when it came to my guitar solo, he reached over, he grabbed the tape head on my echoplex and he's running it from one end to the other it sounded like the guitar was eating itself just crazy and it was a fun very fun song to cut we, we were still laughing after the song i mean was complete we're still in a joyful mood and that was really what sold that song because it the joy is all over that you're song. right it was a fun song and it was like your second number one if i remember correctly yeah man unbelievable not bad so mark tell me what's happening these days with you i know you're still creating you're still out there you still got the voice you probably got the the chops on the guitar as well what are you doing well i'm writing some music you know uh jim peterick and myself have written a few tunes together and uh, I'm working right now with uh, Mark Slaughter from the group Slaughter in, in the, in the 80s there. Yep. And he's a, uh, I think he's an eighth native American too. And our hearts run really close together. And uh, I've, I've been writing some really good stuff with Mark. He brings it out of me, especially the the part the love of the earth and and uh what we're doing together i can't wait uh for people to hear because uh there's a song that we just finished called anymore and uh i'm gonna go to nashville well he lives in outside of nashville about an uh, hour outside of nashville but i'm gonna go down there and finish a couple of lines 
and then we're going to release that thing. I think, I think it's a hit. I mean, I, you know, everybody hopes that their songs are hits, of course, but this thing has got a magic to it. And we cut it in a four, three, two, not a four forty, my brother, a four, three, two, the universe vibrates at four, three, two. And so this song is going to be uh, welcomed by everybody, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's not fighting our frequency. It's joining the love that we were constructed from. And uh, I think it's invigorating to work like this and to work with other people on music is just uh, something that I'd never done too much of prior, you know, when the band was together, I was writing all the, I wrote 92% of the music. And even some of the songs that, that Don co-wrote, the ones that we co-wrote, he would do the lyrics, I did the music. There was never any kind of, you know, other kind of collaboration. It was, that was the way it was. So to get out and to write with people now is very exciting for me and, uh, because I'm expanding. And I am the eternal student. I feel like I've kept myself open to ideas and to thoughts and to spiritual influence because, you know, our hearts are so neglected these days. We're led by our eyes and, and our heads are leading, but our hearts should be leading us through this life. And so I'm, I'm staying closer to that scenario in my own personal being. And uh, for me, the confidence that I have in what I'm doing uh, and the love that I still have for doing music, brother, it's, it's even bigger today than it was ever before. Isn't that something? I really want to thank you, Mark, for being on the show. You are an awesome musician and an awesome person on top of that. And uh, it's been just a great thing to have you on. And I wish you the best in all the stuff that you're doing now. Well, I, I appreciate it, Brother Robert. Thanks for listening and to the Follow Your, your, Dream Follow your Podcast. Dreams podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, uh, and review God the bless podcast you with it so you don't miss another inspiring episode. Just the, the title You can connect it. with Robert you know, at Robert it's very at FollowYourDreamPodcast.com. And, and you can hear more from his doing band this with you, Project Grand I know that that's where you come and from. And at the PGS So God bless you, Robert Miller. I thank you very, very much. And now we're going to listen again to the song that we had in the introduction, my version of Free by Fish. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.
Wait, wait, wait.